0: Um, Verses 1 to 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scriptures say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. also the uncircumcised for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness how then was it counted to him was it before or after he had been circumcised it was not after but before he was circumcised he received the sign of the of circumcision as a seal of righteousness and that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So far, the reading. And now, Matthew 28.
1: Thank you, and the passage uh, we want to particularly look at this morning comes from here, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that most of us are very familiar with this formula, but can you tell me what it means? It speaks here of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God who is Three, but it was also one. It's a difficult idea, isn't it? And so, over the ages, people have come up with analogies, with examples to help us uh, understand. And one illustration you may have heard sometime is that Trinity is a little bit like water, which can consist uh, as um, as ice a solid, or as water, a liquid, or as steam, a gas. Now, I don't think it's a terribly good example or illustration, because it sometimes makes people think that the Trinity is God, just one person who puts on a different hat. I'll put on my God the Father hat today. Oh, in this for this, I'll put on my God the Son hat. And here I'll put on my Holy Spirit hat. A- and that's not correct because we are talking of three distinct persons. And so St. Patrick, who's well known to those of Irish background, he said uh, the Holy Trinity perhaps can be likened to a three-leaf clover. Uh, Well, it's only a little bit of an illustration, but again, uh, there's no reason why uh, you can't pick a leaf off and have two leaves Or for that matter, even in nature, we sometimes find a four-leaf clover. And, of course, God exists uniquely as Trinity. Now, an illustration I sometimes use is like the three dimensions. You have width, you have depth, and you have height. And if you take any one of those away, you actually end up with nothing. And I think that tells us something about God, that God exists in those three persons, and you can't take any away. But none of these really tell us what God is like. It's not, they're not perfect illustrations. But I do want to point out that the Bible itself gives us, I think, a better illustration, and it does so in the very first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, where we read that God said, Let us make men in our image, male and female, created he them. You see, it's not just um, individuals who are the image of God, but God himself who talks of himself as we and us and our. Now, this is not God speaking to angels. Because we are not made in the image of angels. We are made in the image of God. So when God said, let us make them in our image, he's talking about himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And notice, he makes them then not just one man, but male and female together are the image of God. And what we recognize uh, is that it isn't just individuals who are to be an image of God, but that collectively, as a community, we are the image of God. Now, this has long been recognized in the Eastern Church, like the Greek Orthodox Church and so on. They've said the Trinity is like a family, a household. And the Greek word for household is economist, from which we get the word economy, and uh, in a household, everybody has his own task. Uh, Dad does this, mom do this, and the various kids have their uh, chores to do. And uh, that's how it is also in the Trinity. It's important we recognize that every person in the Trinity had his own unique task. It's not God, the Father, who hung on the cross for us or God, the Holy Spirit, No, that was the task of Jesus Christ. And it's God who is Father, was there to to organize it, you can say. And it's the Spirit who then uh, picks up what Christ has done, and who brings life to Christ's people. So the Trinity is like a household where they all have their own task. And theologians sometimes refer to this as an economic trinity, economy meaning household. And why is this important that we recognize that every person of the trinity has their task? Because it's our example as a community that we should recognize that each of us has a task here. And that's different for all of us. Sometimes in our modern world, we want everybody to be the same, no differences. Uh, And, uh, sorry, that's not how God created the world. God created differences. He divided things, night uh, from day, light from darkness, male and female. And God created these differences so that they may bring glory to him. And it's important that we recognize what God has made us and that we rejoice in that, and that we do our best where God has placed us, whether that be in the home or in the workshop or in school or on the pulpit. It really doesn't matter uh, where God has placed you because all of us can do what God requires of us where he has placed us. And so uh, we work together as a congregation and that's why we made this promise together as a congregation this morning that it isn't just um, uh, Jason and Libby and uh, Simon and Anna who are going to raise these children, but that all of us are going to do our part in encouraging them, whether that be in creche, whether that be in Sunday school or later in some kind of youth club or catechism, uh, whatever it is, together, We work towards this. Together, we give a good example of Christian life so that these children, too, will say, I want to be like that. And that's how we are to image God, by working together in in harmony, in unity, just like the Holy Trinity, Trinity works together in harmony and unity. Now... If we liken the Trinity to a household or family, it's clear that God himself, of course, is the Father. And this refers, uh, first of all, to the fact that God is Christ's Father. He has been Christ's Father from eternity. You see, Christ was never born. Uh, You read that in the first chapter of John, uh, that Christ was always there uh, from the very beginning but he's in a son relationship to the father. That's how God presents him to us. But of course, uh, when we talk of the fatherhood of God, we also think of how God is our father. And again, this is an idea that goes way, way back. You know where you first find it? In Genesis 6, (laughs) where the people who worship God are referred to as the sons of God. And throughout Scripture, we see they're called children of God. have uh, come up to New Testament, 1 John 3, verse 1, for example. How great is the love of the Father that he has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And of course, Christ himself teaches us that when we pray, we are to pray our Father who art in heaven. We are a family together with God as our Father. And of course, that's why in the Old Testament, people were called, uh, the Israelites were called the people of God. And uh, the word people here is a special word. Uh, It's the word am, which means the kindred, the family of God. Although quite often, uh, when Israel was, Uh, identified as a family. It was with reference to Father Abraham or his grandson Israel who of course uh, was the forefather of the Israelites. It shows again that there's a family identity to God's people as the children of Abraham. And we see that God made a covenant with Abraham that he and his offspring, all his family, should belong to him. And we read about that uh, covenant in the Old Testament. Uh, The Hebrew boys were circumcised as a sign and a seal of the covenant. This reminded them that they belonged to God. And, of course, uh, Israel's identity as God's children was signified in this sign. You know that the idea of the fatherhood of God is central also to the book of Exodus. If you read the book of Exodus in one go, which you should do one time, uh, you pick up all kinds of things you could miss otherwise. And one of the things that God keeps on referring to Israel as my son, my firstborn son, And and so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says you've got to let Israel go because Israel is his son, his firstborn son. Pharaoh says, no. And uh, God gives him some uh, incentives by way of these uh, plagues. And Pharaoh says, maybe, but as soon as the plague is over, no. And finally God says, if you won't let my son go, I will take your son. And so we have this death of all the firstborn in Egypt. But what it points to is the fatherhood of God. And of course, when uh, the Israelites do then go into the desert, we see that God renews his covenant with them, the covenant that he had with Father Abraham. And he gets them at that mountain called Sinai, and God appears there in flames of fire, and he uh, gives them the Ten Commandments, And then uh, following that, all the people are gathered, and in order to ratify the covenant, Moses uh, uh, has a bull sacrificed, and then he takes the blood of the bull, and he sprinkles it on all the people, and says, this is the blood of the covenant. Again, the sign here is cleansing from sin, because these uh, sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. But then we know that later in the history of Israel, Israel sometimes departed from their faith in God and went other ways. And the prophets would warn them and say, you have to return. And uh, finally, uh, the prophets tell them that uh, because they depart, uh, God will uh, depart from them for a while and have them in exile. And it's then that the prophets begin to speak that God will take them back and make a new covenant with them, a much richer covenant. Um, And we read about it in Ezekiel 36, for example. In this covenant, we are told God is not going to sprinkle them with blood, but with clean water. And God is going to give the people a new an obedient heart. Moreover, God is going to put his own spirit in his people so that they will follow him. And if you read other prophets on uh, this covenant, you will see it will not only include the children of Abram by blood, but the people will be gathered from all over and added to the family of Abraham. And so um, we know that this, of course, came true first at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and people repented and were baptized. But um, Paul also clearly links our baptism to us becoming children of God in Galatians 3.26 where he says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all of you who were baptized into Christ. You're baptized into Christ, your son of God. By the way, you might say, isn't it sons and daughters? Well, the word son means heir. Uh, You inherit God's blessings. And that's why that's stressed here. Uh, But it goes on to say, and I'll read it again, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And this brings us to the next point that when we are baptized, we're not only baptized in the name of the Father, but also of the Son. Jesus Christ. And uh, the passage we just read explains to us how it is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin so that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Um, And specifically, this of course refers to the righteousness that Christ gives to those who believe Um, because in the household of the Trinity, Christ who died for our sins he paid for all the evil you've done you don't have to worry about any of it if you come to Christ he died for our sins and baptism is a, a, a symbol of this this washing away of our sin uh, but there's more here the passage doesn't just speak of cleansing from sin but talks about being clothed with righteousness And it's important we recognize that Christ didn't just die on the cross for us, but in the whole of his life, Christ obeyed the commandments of God and therefore was counted as righteousness, as righteous. He was the one righteous person who truly kept all God's commandments. And when we are baptized... Uh, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So that when we stand before God's judgment throne in years to come, God will say, well done, you faithful servant. Because when he looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. And he looks at us as if we had kept all the commandments. And um, so this is what it means to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And... uh, Baptism is a sign of this. Now, we know, of course, that Christians, when they're baptized, do not stop sinning from that moment on. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we stopped sinning? But we know that isn't the case. Uh, But what does happen is that from that moment on, we resolve to overcome what is evil in our life. And we don't have to do that in our own strength. God will help us in this. And so, um, from that moment on, um, we begin to show the signs of what God is doing in our life. I do want to point out that no one here will be holy enough, no matter how long you live and how holy you become, to escape God's judgment on sin in your own strength. We all rely on Christ's merit. And, um, and that means that we uh, have to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ as signified in baptism. Now you might say, does that mean that everybody who's baptized will therefore be saved? No, there are some churches that teach that, but I don't think the Bible does. The Bible makes it clear that ultimately what saves you is if you have faith like Abraham, if you trust Christ. You see, baptism is just like circumcision. It's a sign, it's a seal, but it's a sign and seal of something else that is happening there. And it's important that it signifies something real. Perhaps I can illustrate it this way. If I were to write you a check which we don't do very often anymore. We use credit cards. But if I were to write you a check for a million dollar and I put my seal on it, my signature, and I gave it to you, you think you might get any benefit out of that? No. Because even though my signature would be real and the check is real, it doesn't stand for anything real because I haven't got a million dollar in the bank. So it won't do you any good. And it's the same with baptism. If it doesn't signify something real, if it doesn't point to something that really happened in your life, it's really of no use. And Paul speaks of that in Romans 4, verse 9 to 12, the passage we read earlier. It's a little bit difficult, but I'll read it again. We have been saying that Abram's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Notice, it wasn't his circumcision that saved him. It was his faith. The circumcision was only a sign of that faith. And it goes on to say, and he received a sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's also the father of those who are circumcised um, who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now if you have faith in God's salvation, then you will be saved. That's true for Sophie. That's true for Declan. As they grow up, they will have to develop that faith in God because without that, you cannot be saved. But you might say, well, if baptism itself isn't a guarantee, then how can we know that we are saved? Well, we do have a guarantee. In fact, we have more than that. We have a deposit of our salvation. And we find that in Ephesians 1.13. having believed, you were marked with him. Sorry, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. You see, that's why we are baptized also into the name of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's given to us as a deposit. And a deposit is is a very strong thing. Uh, It's something you don't have to give back. It's given you, it's yours. And it's your guarantee that uh, things are real. But you might say, how can I know I have the Holy Spirit? Well, you know it by the way he leads you every Christian should become aware of this leading of the Spirit, a leading that stops you from doing things where Satan would have you go, a leading that helps you to grow in righteousness, a leading that helps you to grow in trust of Christ, a leading that changes your life. And uh, we are told in 2 Peter that uh, we are to make our calling and election sure. How? By adding goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love to our faith. And let me tell you, the more you practice these, the more you let yourself be led by the Holy Spirit, the more certain you will be of your salvation, that never fails. So how then can we summarize the benefits of being baptized in the name of the triune God? We've seen that we're baptized in the name of the Father because God promises to be our Father as well as Christ's. That we're baptized into the name of Christ so that we, we may be cleansed by his blood and clothed in his righteousness. And thirdly, that we are baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit so that he may be present with us to help us grow in righteousness and give us that conviction that we belong to God's people. Now, it's my experience that I've known God as my father from my earliest memories, and I'm sure there are some people here who share in that. And it's my sincere prayer that Declan and Sophie will have that kind of experience, that as they become aware, they are aware, they don't just have a mummy and daddy here, but they have a daddy up there, a founder who cares for them. And uh, it's my prayer that I, with this awareness will come a growth in Christian conviction and faith. We do know that other people have had other experiences. Some have been baptized and totally ignored it. Like the prodigal son, they've gone out and done their own thing until the Lord called them back. We know that sadly there are some people people who are still astray and we must continue to pray for them that God will call them back into his family. We also know that God goes to people who are not part of the Christian family at this stage but calls them in from all over the world. And uh, we were reminded of that just two weeks ago when uh, a bishop was uh, baptized. Uh, and Jason gives uh, testimony to God calling him in like that. And so I want you to be aware that if you are not baptized, that promise is also there for you if you come to Christ and trust in him. Um, the call... To believe and be baptized is a call that goes out to the whole world and all those who come will not be disappointed that we'll have the, the fatherhood of God, the cleansing of Christ, and the presence of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord God and our Father, we thank you for the wonderful gospel that you sent your Son to die for us, to cleanse us from our sins, to reconcile you us to you and you to us so that you will be our Father. And Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. And it's our prayer that every one of us will feel him strongly at work in our hearts.
0: Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.